Lord, we are asking you to bless our time tonight in your word. We pray that you would speak to our hearts and that, uh, that you would teach us and grow us and that we would become more like you. So have your way with us, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so tonight, Lord willing, we're going to get through 1 Timothy chapters 1, 2, and 3. And what happens tonight is we start a transition uh, because what we've been trying to do this year is work our way through the epistles uh, in the New Testament. And Timothy brings us to a change because up to this point, what we've been reading is letters that Paul has written to churches. So we had the letter to the church in the city of Rome called Romans, the letter to the church in the city of Corinth, or the two of them called First and Second Corinthians. We had the letter to the Galatians. We had the letter to the Ephesians. And so tonight what happens is we switch into what's called the pastoral epistles. Paul is going to write three letters, First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus to young pastors who he's wanting to encourage in their ministry and in their calling. And so you could, if you're not careful, say, well, I'm not a pastor, and so does this really apply to me? But if you come regularly to this church, you know that every one of us is a full-time minister. And so the book is full of application for anybody who is interested in ministering to the Lord, in serving the Lord. Ministry is just another word for servant, servanthood. If you are interested in serving the Lord, these books are full of information on how to do it. And if you're interested in what a healthy church should look like and your role in a healthy church, they are full of information to pastors about how to shepherd and guide and direct a congregation into being a healthy church. And so, uh, so where we're going, Paul is writing this to Timothy because Paul had been pastoring this church and then he had a situation come up and he had to go to Macedonia. So Timothy is left in charge of the church at Ephesus. And... Paul is writing this letter to encourage them because he's hoping that whatever's going on in Macedonia, we really don't know what it is uh, historically, he's hoping that it will wrap up fast and he can come right back and keep pastoring the church at Ephesus. But just in case, he decides, you know what, I'm going to write Timothy a letter of encouragement to just give him some, some pointers and some thoughts on here's how ministry should work. And so that's what we have. We have the book of 1 Timothy as a result of that. If you want, if you like, some people are really into like summaries or sermon titles or whatever, if you want to know what First Timothy is about, it's about, you can sum it up in one word, and that is focus. Timothy, the letter of First Timothy, is Paul telling Timothy, okay, listen, here's what you need to do if you want to be a pastor. Focus. Do not get sidetracked. Do not get distracted by good things. You have a mission. You have a call from God on your life, and it's important that you walk in that and that you not get distracted. And there are going to be a lot of things. There are going to be a lot of people. There are going to be a lot of ideas that come your way that are going to be tempting you to just veer off course ever so slightly because there might be good things and good needs and good people, but if that is outside of what God is calling you to do, it will distract you from the role that the Lord has for you. So you are going to need to focus. First Timothy is all about focusing in ministry, focusing in serving the Lord. And so Paul starts out, chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. So right off the bat, Paul does this in almost all of his letters. He gives claim to his authority. Paul doesn't say, hey, I'm writing this letter because I feel like it or because I'm brilliant. He says, I'm writing this letter because I'm an apostle by the commandment of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ our hope. I am writing this letter to you because I have been given a position of authority and I'm walking in it. And so when we read this book, we don't read this book as insights 
and helpful thoughts. We read this book as God commanded Paul to write it to someone in ministry. And so we need to read this book as this book is written by God. And so the application in it is not like, well, I like that idea. Maybe I can tweak it a little bit. No, no. The words of God are written at the direction of God. And so we need to handle them and treat them and obey them as if that's the case. He goes on in verse 2 and says to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. So this greeting is a little bit different from most of Paul's greetings to the churches because when Paul writes to the churches, he says grace and peace to you. When he writes to pastors, he says grace, mercy, and peace to you. And people speculate on why that is, but I think there's a couple of thoughts that are, that are really valid. One is that, frankly, pastors need mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Pastors are sinners. And the book of James tell us, tells us that uh, teachers will come under a stricter judgment. They will be held accountable by the Lord because they have been responsible for discipling people. And if they have done that job poorly, the Lord will hold them responsible for that. And so a, a pastor needs to not be judged based on what he did. He needs to not be judged based on his qualifications. He needs to be judged based on the goodness of God. So he needs mercy. But there's another thing, and so that's sort of the big picture, but on a smaller level, every pastor needs to recognize that himself. Grace is the, all the blessings and the goodness and the riches and the good things that come from serving the Lord. Mercy is all the bad things that you do not get. Okay? Grace is I'm going to bless you abundantly. Mercy is I am not going to give you what you deserve. Because what do we all deserve? We all deserve hell. We deserve an eternity separated from every good thing, separated from the presence of God. And Paul is reminding Timothy, hey, you need mercy because no pastor is without sin. No pastor, and with that, if, if Timothy can understand, if pastors understand that there's a role that they need mercy, then all of a sudden it's no longer about, well, do I deserve a church that's this big? Or do I, you know, well, have you ever seen an ambitious pastor? Right, who's, who's using the church as a stepping stone either to make himself famous or to get a bigger church or, well, you know, or to, to gain some sort of following. If, I, if you are only in the role that you're in by the commandment of God and the mercy of God, then all of a sudden, it doesn't matter how many people come. If one person comes, it's one more than you ever deserve to have listened to you. And that's true for all of us in ministry. None of us deserve to have a following. And if the Lord gives any of us a position of influence... It's not because we are awesome. It's because he is gracious and because he is merciful. And we need to never lose sight of that. There are things we deserve that we have not received. And there are things we do not deserve that we have been given. And it's important for anybody who wants to be in a role of leadership to understand that. But also, we talk about it every time, grace and peace are always in that order because the grace of God brings us the peace of God. And it's always in that order. He never says peace and grace. He always says grace and peace. And he repeats it over and over and over again. And as we're going through it, you could say, wow, you are talking about this over and over and over again. And it's because we are born with a desire for peace. We want to get back to Eden. We want peace. And the only way we obtain it is by understanding the grace of God. Understanding the depth of what it means that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And that we are those sinners and he still came to save us. So that's his introduction. Verse 3, he says, As I urged you, we're going to read all the way through verse 11. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, 
nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. And we're actually going to stop there. Paul says, okay, listen, I'm going to reiterate what I told you when I left, which is remain in Ephesus and charge some that they teach no other doctrine. No other doctrine than what? Than what Paul had been teaching, right? In the book of Acts, Paul comes to the church of Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem. He says, it's, he knows it's going to be the last time he ever sees them. And he says, okay, guys, if I have offended anybody, if I have wronged anybody, let me know right now and I'm going to make it right because I'm not going to see you again and I want, to, I want to make it right. And he says, I have not, but remember, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Paul pastors a church in, in the city of Ephesus and when he leaves the church, he can say, I have not failed, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And that verse is really pivotal for us as a church because we believe that the only way that a pastor can say that, the only way that a church can truly believe that is if they teach the whole counsel of God. And it's why we go through the entire Bible as a church. So Paul is taking this church through the word and he tells Timothy, okay, listen, you keep going. Charge some that they teach no other doctrine. They do not need to get away from the word of God. If, if Timothy is going to pastor a healthy church, it needs to be a church that is focused, that is fixated, that is almost obsessed on, we stick to the word of God. We do not get into the words of Timothy. We do not get into the words of Paul. We are going to stick with what has God said and how does it apply to our lives. And he says, I don't want you to give heed to fables or endless genealogies. They just cause disputes rather than godly edification. There are all kinds of things a church can go off on and teach on. But they, if they don't cause godly edification, they are not going to help the church. And he says, now, the purpose of the commandment, the purpose of what I'm telling you is this. Love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. The purpose of teaching the word is to help people grow in, love, in pure love, in a good conscience, and a sincere faith. To help them know and understand the love of God, a good conscience, which comes from walking with the Holy Spirit and a sincere faith to truly believe and obey what Jesus Christ has done for us, to let the truths of Christianity influence us in an active sense. So the purpose of this, the purpose of teaching the word is so that we grow up, so that we grow into what Christ has created us to be. And he says, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things that they affirm. Paul says, people who have gotten off on this, they now want to be teachers of the law, but they really don't know what they're talking about. And specifically, the church at Ephesus, if you go through the book of Ephesians and kind of the book of Acts, and, and basically where they're, they're getting into this all idea of, well, you know, Christianity is great, but really spiritual Christians keep all the Old Testament law. And Paul says in verse, and Paul's saying here, when they get into that and they just want to be teachers of the law, not only are they not helping the church, they're also demonstrating that they don't even understand what the law is for. In verse 8, he says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers 
and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So Paul, Paul says the law is given for unrighteous people. Now, who's unrighteous? All of us. The law is given, the Old Testament law is given to point out something very specifically and very clearly, and that is that you and I are sinners. The law serves a distinct purpose. If you read through the Old Testament, you should come to a very clear conclusion, and that is that we are all desperately in need of a Savior. Because all the most righteous men in the Old Testament law could not keep it. Abraham failed. Moses failed. David failed. Right? Nehemiah. Jeremiah. Even guys like Daniel, who we don't necessarily have a record of, a, of an immediate, of a sin of theirs, they still, when they pray to the Lord, say, God, we have sinned. All the Old Testament heroes stumble and fall because the law cannot save you. The law can demonstrate that you need a savior. And so Paul says, people who think that using the law is going to make them more spiritual are just proving that they don't even know what the law is actually about. And so if he's, he's making a point, if they get away from the word of God and they get into all, you know, while well, real Christians keep the, the rules and do the right thing, all they're demonstrating is that they don't know what the rules are for. The rules don't make you more spiritual. The rules prove that you need Christ. Okay? And so he says, he's making a point that that's all the law can do. Now, he's not then saying, ignore the law, because Paul has said, he'll tell this church, I didn't shun to declare to you the whole counsel of God. He's telling Timothy, you know, I charge you to keep teaching this, to go through the word of God. And at the time, the New Testament hasn't been written, so he is talking about you take them through the Old Testament. So what we're not saying is that the Old Testament has no value. But what we are saying is that it's, it's, you cannot, as a Christian, say, okay, I'm going to take what Jesus said as, as the definition of being a Christian, and I'm going to believe in Jesus Christ for my salvation, and now I'm going to go back to the law and find all the secrets and the mysteries and the ways to go from being an average Christian to an exceptional Christian. Because deep down, we all know that I'm exceptional material, just not quite appreciated yet, right? So I'll go to the law and find all those things that I think I need to make me feel like an exceptional Christian. Paul says, no, no, no. You go to the law and you're going to come away. Go to the law and come back to, oh God, I need you. Oh God, I need the grace of Jesus Christ. I need his mercy. My sins are many. I need his mercy to be new every morning. Go to the law, but don't ever go to the law for the sake of making yourself more spiritual. Read the law. Read the whole word of God. Absolutely, you have to if you want to be a well-balanced Christian. But understand that the law will not make you righteous. The law will point you to Christ, and Christ will make you righteous. He goes on. He's making a point of contrast here in verse 12. He says, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. For this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Paul contrasts the idea of going into the law with his own experience. He says, the law could show you that you're a sinner. But he says, grace and mercy brought me into relationship with Christ. And the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ brought me into relationship with him so that I could be a demonstration to the rest of the world that Jesus Christ can save anybody. Paul, you know, we've got to be careful to not forget who Paul was before he was saved. Paul would enter houses and carry off women and children and separate families for the sake of trying to crush Christianity. When he had the opportunity, he always voted for the death penalty if a person was on trial and they were a Christian. Paul had a mission, and that was to destroy Christians and Christianity, and God reached out and saved him. Paul says, the law could not save me. Jesus Christ saved me, and he saved me as a demonstration of the fact that he can save anybody, that anybody can be in a relationship with him. So don't, so Timothy, focus, don't get distracted by the law. Don't get distracted by rules. Don't get distracted by good churchy things. You stay focused on the word of God. And he says, verse 18, this charge, which is which charge? The charge he gave him back in the beginning, right? The charge to keep going. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I deliver to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Timothy had evidently received a prophecy about his calling. Okay? And Paul tells Timothy, listen, you walk in that. If, some, if, if the Lord has spoken that you are supposed to do something, you do it. You walk in it. And you don't lose sight of it. You stay focused. If the Lord has put something in your heart, if the Lord has given you a call or a, a vision or a mission, you fulfill it. You stay faithful. You stay on course. You stay on track to do it. And he says, if you get off of that, there are guys like Hymenaeus and Alexander who have suffered shipwreck. Their faith is totally gone to pieces. And he says, I delivered them to Satan. That's a weird term, especially in English. We can kind of like, it kind of scares us all, but it doesn't need to. Um, Paul uses this term twice in the New Testament. The other time is in 1 Corinthians when he's talking about a guy who is in the church but is actively involved in, in sexual sin and is not repenting and is totally proud of it. And Paul says, deliver him to Satan. And basically what the idea is, you know what? Don't enter into fellowship with this guy. Not so that you can judge him, but so that he recognizes what it's like to be outside of the presence of God. If this guy is away from the church, if the church is, I'm sorry, while you're walking in that sin, you need to not come here. Then that guy is going to experience what that feels like, and he's going to be desperate for, okay, I've, if, if I am missing out on that much, I did not realize how much the peace and the presence of God were in my life, even though I was walking in sin. Now I don't have that. I'm desperate for that. I'm willing to repent. I'm willing to do whatever. And in 2 Corinthians, the guys come back. So Paul, the idea here is, you know, sometimes you have to break fellowship with people. Not for the sake of being cruel, not for the sake of being judgmental, and certainly not for the sake of thinking that you're better than them, but for the sake of saying, you know what? There are blessings that come from being part of this church family. But there are also responsibilities. It's like being in a family. If, if you refuse to partake of any of the responsibilities, then you don't get the blessings. They come together. And so that's where he's going with that. So chapter 2. Paul, well, yeah, chapter 2. Paul's going to get into some specific exhortation and specific 
principles of ministry and of a healthy church. All right? So he says, therefore, I exhort, first of all, and I love the phrase, first of all. The problem in English is we say it so often that we never actually think about what it means because we don't put spaces in it, right? It's first of all, and it's first of all, but it's first of all. Of all that's going to come in the rest of this book, Paul is saying, right here, what I'm about to say is the first thing. This one trumps everything else. This one is the big one. If you're going to, you know, I, I really hate it when pastors say, you can, if you get this point, you can fall asleep for the rest of the teaching. I always think like, why? Like, if I believe it's the word of God, it's relevant, you ought to be staying awake. But Paul says, first of all, if you're going to get one thing out of this, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Paul says, first of all, pray. And if that wasn't specific enough, he says, first of all, pray and give thanks. And if that wasn't specific enough, he says, first of all, pray and give thanks for all men and for kings and all who are in authority. First of all, I mean, you just, just think about it for a second. If, if I had to get up here and tell you the one thing that's necessary to, to live a healthy Christian life, what would it be, right? I mean, I mean, like, what would you say? Would you, would you say, like, you know, stay in the word of God. Be filled with the spirit of God. Don't forsake the assembling together of the brethren. What does Paul say? He says, pray. And, and by our actions, so often we demonstrate that we really don't think prayer actually works, right? I mean, it, it's a good thought, you know. It, I mean, we chalk it up to, like, wishful thinking, honestly, with the way we pray. And Paul says, no, no, no. I want you to pray more than you do anything else. Why? Because prayer brings us into alignment with the heart of God. And in case you were wondering, he helps you clarify it. It includes giving thanks. Giving thanks is an act of prayer. And giving thanks for all men, for kings, and for all who are in authority. Doesn't that sting just a little bit? Right? Now, I know enough people in this room to know that most of us are not currently happy with the majority of people who are in authority in this government. And you know what Paul says? Pray for him, right? I, I mean, you think about it, like, like, it is so much fun to complain about political leaders, right? Like, there is, there is so much ammo there, right? I mean, you can, just, you can just start at the beginning of the day, and you can wrap up at the end of the day, and you haven't even gotten warmed up. I mean, there's just so much there. And especially now in the, in the internet age, I mean, every single thing that a person does is recorded for us. And you can just watch videos and commentary and talk shows. And you can, you can explain and find a whole kind of people who will agree with you that the person of your choice is stupid and disqualified and idiotic and probably a criminal and probably a, a creep and a pervert if we're all going to be honest here. I mean, you know, and I know. I mean, and, and did you see that documentary they had online? They took it down. You know why they took it down, right? Because you know who's in charge. You know who's calling the shots up there. I'll tell you what, that is not, that's not normal. That's unnatural. That's what it is. That's what, it's a whole plan. I bet it's a whole conspiracy. You can do that all day long. You can do that for the rest of your life. And you know what it will accomplish? Nothing. It will accomplish absolutely nothing. Nothing. Now, I'm not talking about being an irresponsible citizen. We're given the opportunity to vote. We're given the opportunity to actually use our voice publicly. That's something that most people throughout history and throughout most nations have never had. That's a privilege and a responsibility, and we should use it wisely. 
But, but first of all, pray. What if, just, just hypothetically here, what if every one of us, every time we were tempted to complain about any person in general, because Paul says all men, and then he goes on to elaborate that it, could also, it includes kings and those in authority. What if every time you are tempted to complain about a human being, you prayed for them? And not only prayed for them, but gave thanks for them. Paul says, giving thanks. You're like, are you, you, you expect me to give thanks for him? And I'm like, I don't. Paul does, right? Giving of thanks for all men. You say, I'm not thankful for that person. Really? <laughs> well, the Lord allowed that person into your life, into this period of history, into this position of authority, whichever one it is. And the Lord, newsflash, the Lord wins, right? If someone has set themselves against the plan of God, you don't have to be thankful that someone is walking in sin. But you can be thankful that the Lord has got a plan. You can be thankful that the Lord is working. You can be thankful that the Lord has given you the opportunity to do something to affect change by giving you the ability to pray for that person. Do you think our leaders need prayer? Yes. I mean, we have, I mean, we have leadership right now that is aligning itself as hard-lined against the word of God as you possibly can. Those people need prayer. If, if nobody, if they are going to experience consequences for their actions. The Lord takes, you know, Jesus said it'd be better to have a millstone hung around your neck than to harm one of these little ones. And our country is harming little ones. The Lord takes that seriously, right? And so maybe instead of, of cracking jokes, maybe we should pray. Because Paul told us to. He told Timothy, you focus. And first of all, you pray. And he says, for this, verse 3, is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul says, all right, you should pray for all men, for all kings, for everybody who's in authority. Why? Because this is good and acceptable in the sight of Jesus Christ who desires who? All men to be saved. God wants everyone to be saved. Now, here's the deal. This is really important because sometimes the church, and there's, there's a huge amount of influence in the church right now that says, well, God is completely sovereign and if he's completely sovereign, he knows who's going to accept him and who's not. And that means that there are some people who just aren't going to go to heaven and they frankly just, sorry, too bad for them. You know, tough luck. Um, but yeah, you're going to hell. There's nothing I can do about it. Too bad, so sad. And most of those people wouldn't phrase it quite like that, but that's the, that's the end result of their train of thought. And when we, as a church, as, as individual believers, our responsibility is to hold fast to the word of God. And so what we do, when we come to verses that describe either the sovereignty of God or the responsibility of man, what we don't do is try and mute them both. We don't say, well, God is like mostly sovereign, but, you know, somebody in their free will could override God's sovereignty. No, 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 no. Is God sovereign? Oh, God's sovereign. And sometimes the healthiest thing we can do as Christians if we come to a paradox where there are two truths that seem like they contradict each other, instead of coming to the middle, go to the edge. Is God sovereign? He's not sovereign. He's insanely sovereign. He's so sovereign, you don't even know what the word sovereign means. 
right? The atoms in your body are being held together because God is sovereign and because he's in control. Are you responsible? And sometimes we say, well, you know, if God's sovereign, then I'm like kind of responsible. No, 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 no. You are totally responsible. You're not partially responsible. You're completely responsible for your actions. You are not a victim of your circumstances, right? And, and especially, I think it's in Ephesians, he says, you know, you're a new creation in Christ. So you're a creation in Christ. You're not, you're not the result of your parents. You're not the result of your spouse or your ex-spouse. You're not the result of your kids. You're the result of what Jesus Christ is doing in your life and your willingness to walk in obedience to it. You are responsible. But is God sovereign? Oh, God is sovereign. Insanely sovereign. And so, does God, so sometimes we come to a verse that talks about God's sovereignty and we got to pause and say, you need to understand, God is sovereign. We get to, you know, Ephesians, he talks about God predestined us to adoption. That's incredibly comforting because God who is big enough to know ahead of time that I'm going to accept him can can do that and can preserve me through the times when I feel weak and when I'm not doing well. He's faithful. But in the same vein, I'm responsible. You're responsible. Every one of us is responsible. And God desires all men to be saved. Okay? And so we just got to pause. Whenever we get to these verses, it's always important. What do we teach? Teach the Bible. Right? Our job is not to read the Bible and make sure that it lines up with our doctrines. Our job is to read the Bible and make sure that our doctrine lines up with it. And if you come to a verse and you say, that really doesn't jive with what I believe, you better change your thinking, right? If you say, that doesn't jive with what I believe, one of the two of you is wrong. It's either you, who, for as brilliant as you are, you know, you're not God, right? You know, like, God is, he's really smart. And so if it's you versus God, and he says, this is how it is, and you say, I don't think that's how it is, one of you is wrong. My money is on you. I'm just going to go on a limb and say, you're wrong. So Paul says, first of all, prayer. And now second of all, he doesn't say second of all, but it's kind of implied because it's the next thing he gets to. He's going to give us emphasis on the roles of men and women in the church. He says, verse 8, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, I'm going to pause there. And if you're, depending on how familiar you are with the church and with the Bible, you're thinking like, okay, I know what's coming next. When he starts talking about women, there's some awkward verses in there, but we'll get there. The men get one verse. The women get, uh, what is it? Nine through 15. Six verses. Seven verses, whatever. I was homeschooled. The women get seven verses, the men get one verse. And you could say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, hold on. Let's talk about it. Paul says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, without wrath and doubting. There's really th three things that he wants men to do. All right? The first one is pray everywhere. And that's just interesting to me. I I'm just, I'm, I've been chewing on it all day long, and I just think it's like the weirdest thing. But what do we do as men? I mean, think about just hypothetically. Imagine you're at a church, and they finish up worship, and the pastor gives the announcements, and he says, and now find somebody and ask them how you can be praying for them this week and then be faithful to do that. Just imagine hypothetically you're at a church that does that on a Sunday morning. What do we do as men? If we're like really feeling spiritual, we'll actually do it. Okay, we'll actually ask somebody, 
how we can pray for him. But truth be told, you know and I know that sometimes we just didn't get there in conversation, you know. We were talking about something else, and he, you got up to teach. It's your fault. If you would have let the break go longer, I probably would have gotten there. But, you know, we don't, get, we don't really get around to it. So, first of all, if the men are supposed to pray everywhere, we should probably be more diligent about asking how we can pray for other men. And in the appropriate context, ladies and, and kids, too, and all that. But should pray everywhere. What do we do as men? Let's, let's just say we're like, you know, we're feeling really spiritual. And so dad says, go find somebody you can pray for. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go find somebody. I'm going to ask them how I can pray for them this week. And they tell me how I can pray for them this week. What do we say? What do we say? I'll be praying for you. Right? Because why? Because we're men. We don't need to pray in public. We can go home. We'll pray. If we're feeling really spiritual, we'll write it down so we won't actually forget. It's always funny when somebody gives you a prayer request and then you forget to pray for it. And then they come back later and they say, man, I felt your prayers. I'm always like, I don't know what you felt, but it wasn't my prayers. Um, but the men are supposed to pray everywhere. So he's saying, listen, don't, don't just say like, okay, cool, man. I'll, I'll be praying for you this week, you know. Pray right there. And, and understand, ladies, we're going to get to you in a minute here, okay? So if you're sitting here as a lady and you're thinking, this is so stupid. Understand, this is a major stretch for all of us men here, okay? Like, we're going to find somebody, we're going to ask them how we can pray for them, and then we're actually going to do it on site, right? I mean, that's a little bit of a stretch. You guys know that, okay? It's like, I mean, let's be frank, we're not all Jeff Tripp here. Have you guys ever prayed with Jeff? Have you guys ever prayed with Jeff Tripp on a Sunday morning? He's not here, so I, I can tease him. But Jeff Tripp, I love that guy. Man, if he finds, if he finds you and he asks you how he can pray for you, he's going to pray for you right there and just a little if you haven't ever had the experience if he asks you how he can pray for you the first thing you need to do is spread your feet as far apart as you can because when Jeff decides to pray he's going to give you this massive bear hug and start praying and he rocks and if you're not careful and your feet are too close together you got a weird center of gravity in the middle of that prayer and you are not going to get a word out of what he says because you're going to be trying not to fall over but but he's, you know what he's doing? Okay, we, we can laugh because it feels a little bit odd for men to do it. But you know what he's doing? He's obeying the word of God. He's praying everywhere. And Paul goes on and says, lifting up holy hands. This is interesting because what do we learn as, as kids? How should you pray? We say, all right, let's pray. And what do we all do? Bow your heads and fold your hands. Now, that's not bad, okay? Especially if you're trying to help kids not get distracted. But prayer is just conversation. When I'm talking, I use my hands. Paul says, you don't have to go into this whole like boxed in ritual when you pray. You're just talking to the Lord. And then he says, without wrath and doubting. Prayer is not time to vent, right? Prayer is not our opportunity to vent. It's our opportunity to be in the presence of the Lord and converse with the Lord. And without doubting, prayer is also, we've got to be careful with this. Okay, but when the scriptures talk about prayer, when Jesus talks about prayer in the Gospels, he talks about praying boldly. He says, you tell that mountain to be moved and cast into the sea, and it's going to get moved and cast into the sea. I used to try it when I was a kid. It never worked. So my faith was smaller than a mustard seed. But, um, but sometimes we pray, and we just start qualifying everything, right? 
Like, like God is an insurance salesman. Like, like, okay, Lord, if this meets all 32 causes, you know, and I know you're busy, I know this probably won't work, I know it's probably a dumb idea, but if all those criteria happen to be met and you still feel like it and I still am in the mood to pray for it, I'm just going to say if you want to do that, then maybe that could be a great idea if it happens. If not, that's totally cool too. I'm chill either way. That's not a prayer. That's, that, that's like making a wish, okay? And Paul's just making a point here. There's, there's, a, there's a fine line and we've got to be careful. Our job is not to tell God what he has to do. But if we go to the Lord in prayer, it's okay to just say, Lord, I'm asking for this. And it's okay if the Lord decides to say no, you know, so kind of you got a purpose in your heart ahead of time. If the Lord decides to say no, that's okay. It's not like, Lord, my faith is hinging on this, and if you don't pull through, then you're not real. It's, Lord, I'm asking for this. And I would even challenge us, can you, uh, can you tell if your prayers get answered? Because sometimes we pray so broadly that if the Lord answers our prayer, we'll really never know. God, help me to have a great day today. What does that even mean? When you get to the end of the day, are you going to know, did God answer your prayer or not? Right? Sometimes, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm saying there's something to be said for, can we pray specifically? Can we pray, ask the Lord for something specific and see what he does with it? Right? And, and, and I'm just saying, this, I was challenged in this last year by somebody. And so this year, I, I made a list. There's about eight things I'm praying for specifically this year. And I want to, at the end of the year, the Lord may or may not answer them. But I'll at least be able to set no. The Lord either answered that prayer or he didn't answer that prayer. If he didn't, okay, I'll go back and say, Lord, is there, should I approach it differently? If not, I'll keep praying. I'll ask him to do it in 2024. But if, if, we're, if we just, but understand, this is a huge thing. And Paul evidently feels that men need to have this, have a grasp on this. So men, pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Verse 9, in like manner also. Well, I'm going to back up and just start at the beginning because the sentence flows better that way. Verse 8, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. There you have it, ladies. If you want to be saved, have a baby. Um, no, that's not what he's saying. So we're going to back it up. We're just going to kind of work our way through it, okay? So he says, women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Paul's making a point here about Christian women in the church. And it's important to sometimes understand what he's saying and also understand what he's not saying. What he's not saying is it is wrong or it is sinful for a woman to be attractive. Okay, it's really important to understand this because the Lord created female beauty. The Lord in the Garden of Eden, in perfection, created feminine beauty. And he created the male eye to be attracted to feminine beauty. Okay, the Lord sees it, the form of a woman, as a beautiful thing. It was his idea. And so there's nothing wrong with being beautiful. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be beautiful or taking the necessary steps to help yourself, you know, whatever those things are, okay? 
You know better than I do. But, um, but Paul's point is, that should not be what defines a Christian woman. If that's part of, if that's part of it, that's a wonderful thing. But your, your body is fading away. And if your body is the highest thing that you can attain, or the highest commodity that you have, then you are always on a sliding scale of losing value. If you find your value in your appearance, then it's, 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 it starts to be worth less over time because your body will break down, your body will fade. Okay, so Paul's making a point here. He says, what should a Christian woman clothe herself with? She should clothe herself with that which is proper for a woman who professes godliness. A godly woman should be defined by something other than her physical appearance. If she's incredibly attractive, that's fine. That's a good thing. It's a great thing. But when a Christian, you know, if somebody says, hey, do you know this person? And they, just, and they give me the name of a Christian lady. And they say, what do you know about her? The first thing I say shouldn't be, she's hot. Right? It should be, she loves the Lord. She is godly. She is seeking after a relationship with the Lord. And if somewhere in there, it's, she's also pretty incredibly attractive. That's not wrong. But Paul says, let the emphasis be on where do you, how are you clothing yourself for eternity? How are you preparing your heart for forever? Whatever you do now in the physical is going to fade off. It's going to wear away. Prepare yourself with something that won't fade. Something that will actually increase in beauty. Increase in value. And if you find your worth in who Jesus Christ sees you to be, then all the, the physical things... They can be a pleasant addition, but they are not as necessary, right? And, and so he's just making a point. Ladies, don't put that burden on yourself. Find your identity in Christ first. And then he goes on, and he says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Some people are going to get really, not necessarily you people, but some people in general, get really awkward about the next few verses. Paul says a woman needs to learn in silence with submission. Now part of this, as best as we can tell, is a little bit of a cultural reference because uh, historically, as best as we can tell, the early church set up their services like the early synagogues where you'd have all the men on one side and all the women on the other side. And so if a woman is learning not in silence, then while somebody's up here teaching, the woman over here is going to yell to her husband over here, what verse is he in? Do you, do you really think that's true, Steve? Paul says, hey, ladies, be in church. Learn. But don't disrupt the service, okay? And specifically, if there's a divide between the room, he's making a point. Notice, though, he says, let the women learn. And you can kind of, you know, if you're not careful, you can blow past it like, oh, well, thank you, Paul. I can learn as long as I'm quiet. No, no, no. Let the women learn. Do you understand? God views women as capable of learning. And you can say, well, that's like mildly, that's like a backwards insult. No, no. Understand. In almost every culture in the world, in almost every religion in the world, women are inferior to men, right? Think about what it's like to be a woman around the world. If you're a woman in India, it's a dangerous world. If you're an unborn girl in China, it's a dangerous world, right? If you're a girl in Southeast Asia, it's a dangerous world. If you're a girl in the Middle East, it's a dangerous world. Now, if you're a girl in Europe, a girl in the United States, yes, the world is still full of a lot of dangers, but there is a lot more safety, there's a lot more opportunity, there's a lot available 
to a woman. And that's because of the influence of Christianity. Because Christianity teaches that a woman is, is different than a man, but fully equal with man. A woman has different roles. She can do things that a man can't do, and a man can do things that she shouldn't do. But she has the full capacity to have her own relationship with the Lord. And so the Lord says, let the, Paul says, let the women learn. It's important for women to be growing in their relationship with the Lord on their own. And he says, verse 12, I do not perm- and I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And this is not a cultural reference. And here's why, okay? The learn and silence thing, we can kind of go back and say, okay, yeah, the room was divided. Men and women, he's making a point, don't disrupt the service. But Paul here goes back to creation. So he's going back before culture. He's going back before the culture in, in Ephesus. He's going back before our culture. So he says, a woman, I do not permit her to teach or have authority over a man. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Paul says, here's the deal. A woman should not have the senior role in leading a church. And she should not have the senior role in leading a marriage. And is it because Adam was created first and Eve was created second? Because the Lord created an order for how a man and a woman are supposed to function together as a team. And that order is that the man should be in the leadership position. And Paul says that extrapolates to the church where a woman should not be in, a le- in, in the primary leadership position in the church. And he, and he goes on and elaborates and he says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And this, you've got to be careful. This is, it's always fun territory right here. But he's making a point. Eve was deceived. Eve had a desire to be wise, to be like God, and she was deceived, and she took of the fruit. Adam was under no illusion about what he was doing. Adam said, yep, that is sin. Yep, if I eat that, something's going to happen. I don't know what, but oh well, I'm going to go for it. Adam made a choice. Eve made a mistake. And so Paul's making a point that a woman, by virtue of her desire to, to feel and just her emotions, she has a different role, and she is more, women are more susceptible to deception. When men sin, it's fairly rare that they sin because they just didn't know any better. When men sin, usually we know darn well what we're doing, right? And so Paul's, and that leads to problems, okay? But Paul says in the structure of a church, a man has the ability to sort of shut off parts of his brain and say, you know what, I have to make this decision. And yes, people are going to be offended. And yes, I'm going to lose friends over this. And yes, this is going to be hard for some people emotionally, but this is the path the Lord is taking me on as the leader, and so we are walking in this path. That's just, a man is, Paul's just saying, the way a man's wired, he can do that more naturally. It's going to be a lot more painful for a woman to try and do that. And he goes on, and he makes a point, he says, nevertheless, she'll be saved in childbearing. He's not saying that having babies is what saves you. But he's making a point, I think, that, hey, you know what? Newsflash. There are things you can do that we can't as men, right? Like, I'm not going to have a baby. I'm never going to have a baby. 
It's just not going to happen. I don't care how far medical science gets. I don't care how many surgeries I have. I'm not going to, I'm not going to have any of those anyways, by the way. But I'm not going to have a baby. And even if our culture figures out ways to transplant a uterus and, and give a, you know, create this weird scenario where, quote unquote, a man gives birth, it's not going to be his child. That child won't have been conceived in the way that God created with the union of a man and a woman. That's going to be, it's, whatever it is, it's not a man having a baby, right? I'm not having a baby. Not now, not tomorrow, not in nine months. It's just not going to happen. And Paul's just making a point. Look, we have different roles. And the challenge is that sometimes because a woman can sort of fill the role that a man is created to walk in or can try, there's a temptation to say, well, I ought to do it, right? It's a little easier for men because, you know, some of the roles that a woman is capable of, like, it's just not going to happen. So I don't really have to, I don't really spend a lot of time worrying about like, okay, if I was pregnant, what would I do? It just doesn't really cross my brain that often, okay? But sometimes a woman can spend some time saying, well, you know, if I was the pastor, what would I do? Because it's a little bit conceivable. And Paul's just making a point here. Hey, listen, God has created roles in the church. He's created roles in the marriage. And it's not because men are superior to women. It's because God has created a structure. And when the structure is in line with the word of God, then men and women can grow. When women step into leadership roles, men withdraw, right? When women say, hey, you know what? We can pray everywhere, lifting up our holy hands without wrath and doubting. You know what men say? I'll just write it down and pray later, right? We have roles. Men have roles. Women have roles. Paul's just making a point. Look, fulfill your role. Because what he tells Timothy Where's he go? This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Paul tells Timothy, you do your thing. And Paul's making a point really to all of us. Do your thing. What has God called you to? What is the role or the calling that God has placed upon your life? Walk in that. Don't be going after what somebody else has. It's not necessary. Walk in what has the Lord called you to do. And be focused. Be fixated on the word of God. Remember the grace, the mercy, and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I was planning to do chapter 3 tonight, but I don't think I'm going to. So we'll save it for next week. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have created us to know you. To be in fellowship with you. And we pray that you would guide us deeper into that relationship. That we would be made whole by Jesus Christ, empowered to walk in victory by the Holy Spirit in fellowship with you. God, we pray that, that these truths would impact us, that we would, as men and women, fulfill the roles and the callings that you have given us, that we'd walk wisely, that we would stay focused. God, we pray that we would know you more. So have your way with us. Go before us. Guide us and lead us. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, that we pray. Amen.